This program is released under a Creative Commons license. For more information, visit creativecommons.org. This is Christ the Center, episode 44. Today we speak with James White about apologetics and Islam. Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, a weekly conversation of Reformed theology. My name is Camden Busey, and I have with me today uh, two special guests. Uh, This is not our usual panel, but I have with me a friend of mine, Jason Pickard, who's a student at Westminster Theological Seminary. Good afternoon, Jason. Good afternoon, Kevin. And I also have with us Dr. James White. You can find him at aomin.org with Alpha and Omega Ministries. He's the author of several books, including The Potter's Freedom, as well as a new one on Islam and Christianity, A Matter of Denial and Answering Islam. He's also been a partaker of several debates, and we are pleased to have you on, Dr. White, today to talk about apologetics and Islam. Good afternoon. Well, it's great to be with you. Excellent. Well, this is uh, just a wonderful opportunity that we have because this is such a challenge now, today's day and age, trying to address uh, the issue of, an, of the encroaching Islam, such a huge and dominant force that's out there. And we have Dr. White with us, who's a very capable and able debater and apologist in order to help us to address this major issue. Now, uh, from the outset, what kind of... Um, of platform or framework, apologetical approach, would you say that you hold to, Dr. White? Are there any apologists you would uh, lean on their writings or, or uh, well, approaches? Well, uh, for some people, this uh, opens doors. For other people, it closes doors. <laughs> but uh, uh, when I, uh, back in 1992, uh, a, a little-known fellow by the name of Dr. Greg Bonson uh, contacted me, yes, and yes. he was supposed to be uh, debating uh, Jerry Matitix in Omaha, Nebraska, but he had an opportunity to come up to where he could debate uh, two homosexuals. And if you ever listened to Dr. Bonson's material, I've, I've listened to the resultant encounters that he had. They, they were very valuable. And uh, he actually had me take his debate uh, on Sola Scriptura up in Omaha with Jerry Matitix. And uh, so uh, I, I, I knew Greg, and uh, I play... The Bonson-Stein debate for all of my Golden mm-hmm. Gate classes, and contrast uh, the presuppositional approach with that of someone like William Lane Craig or something like that. And uh, so, uh, I, on that issue, I would be a, a very strong presuppositionalist. I do see great value in the in, uh, internal critique of the theological system of Islam, but at the same time, I'm, I'm not fully certain that I've ever been able to completely grasp or fully understand uh, all of uh, Dr. Bonson's commentary on Islam and how he would approach it. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure how much interaction he necessarily had uh, with some of the leading apologists of Islam either. So I I believe that in this context, when you were dealing with another theistic system, a monotheistic system, uh, a Unitarian monotheistic system, my natural tendency, of course, would be to critique the monotheism. But mm-hmm. as far as as a like a transcendental approach or something like that, I'm not sure how that would actually work uh, with a a real well-read uh, Islamic, a Sunni Muslim. Uh, so in that instance, I'm I'm much more focused upon uh, providing a a response to Islamic denials of the Christian faith. And then demonstrating, and this has been really my bailiwick in the debates I've done, 
demonstrating that I've yet to encounter a consistent Muslim. Um, every Muslim I've debated so far, and I've debated quite a number now, and have a, a, a whole series of debates coming up in, in the UK and at Duke University in less than a month, mm-hmm. um, that every Muslim I've debated so far has to, in essence, abandon his own uh, worldview and his own uh, view of his own scriptures to attack mine. And I'm using that as one of my arguments. I suppose that would be, in some sense, uh, very consistent with uh, Dr. Bonson's approach to demonstrate that, in essence, they have to step out of their own worldview to attack mine and then jump back in uh, to defend their own position. So um, that might give you some some sense of where I'm coming from on that level. No, that's excellent. And we find that I'm convinced that the Vantillian approach is, is proper and most biblical and also most effective. The problem with it, what we find in, in, uh, among students of Westminster and Van, other Vantillians is that sometimes it's such a good uh, apologetic that we don't use it Christianly. It's too yes. easy to destroy people. And uh, uh, Dr. Vern Poitras at Westminster has, has put it one way. He said, Reformed theology, and I would argue even Vantillian apologetics, is in many ways like karate, where there comes a point where you learn enough where you could kill somebody if you're not careful. <laughs> and so it's always important not only to destroy every lofty thing built up and set up against uh, Christ, but we also, of course, need to offer the hope of the gospel after we've done that. Oh yeah. Uh yeah. there there is there is a, a tremendous danger in apologetics for pride, uh arrogance. Uh I have always said that an apologist must be a person who is uh deeply involved in ministry in the church. Uh so many apologists become disconnected from the church. Uh yeah. I'm an I'm an elder in my church and so I have to preach and teach. Uh, I teach the adult Sunday school class. We've been going through the synoptic gospels for almost five years now. Uh, using the uh, the standard text used in seminaries, we have a very odd church, but uh, and a very patient people who yeah. put up with me. That's for sure. uh, but uh, uh, I've always uh, felt that that balance is is really necessary because I've seen many apologists lose their footing, lose their balance. Um, that's why I'm glad I don't deal with just one area. I deal with a, a wide variety of areas that that helps. Uh, uh, as well, but uh, the only other problem with Van Til is that no one can understand him, and uh, <laughs> that's, why, that's why we need and he had, uh, the yeah. interpreter. See, the, the man did not write in English uh, overly well, so uh, we we need the interpreter. You no, know, even in the recent biography of him by John Meather, he explained that was Van Til's. Uh, he was very aware of the fact that he didn't write that well, and he uh, it was one of his self uh, one of his vices or faults that he saw. But now you mentioned you mentioned a bunch of different areas uh, in in debates and apologetics. What are some of the things that a Muslim would most be, would be most critical of in terms of Christianity? I think we can all guess some of the obvious ones. But where do they typically go in a debate with you, and what do they try to to attack first? Well, there's absolutely no question that the fundamental issue with Islam today is the reliability of the New Testament. Um, that's one of the reasons, believe it or not, that in January I'm debating Bart Ehrman uh, on this very issue of whether textual variation precludes the possibility of inspiration, is that Bart Ehrman has become one of the Muslims' favorite people, uh, persons to cite. And uh, almost every single debate comes back to the reliability of the text of Scripture. And so that's one of the things that drew me into this, was a, a combination of, of uh, coming to recognize my connectedness to the persecuted church, uh, the command of Scripture to remember those who are in chains if we ourselves were in, in, in chains with them, and then recognizing that the majority force persecuting Christians in the world uh, is Islam. 
And then in looking at Islam, recognizing that the primary areas they are addressing apologetically are the very areas that I've been focused on uh, for the 25 years that Alpha Omega Ministries has been in existence. Uh, I wrote a book back in 1994, just finished the second edition two days ago that will be out uh, in a few months, called The King James Only Controversy, yes. that yeah. uh, has functioned as an introduction to textual criticism, a friendly and understandable introduction to textual criticism uh, for people for a long, long time now. And so... My biblical background in, in Greek and Hebrew, having taught both of those subjects, the textual critical aspect, church history aspect, another area that I've taught him, uh, these are the, the key areas where many apologists were struggling against Islam because that's where you need to have that knowledge. And so that was part of what uh, combination that drew me to this. But almost every single debate comes back to uh, whether the uh, New Testament in particular, but the Bible as a whole, is reliable. The reason for this, of course, is due to the uh, the problem that you have with the anachronism that is forced upon modern Islam. What I mean by that is you have a man named Muhammad, and let's just say for the sake of argument that Muhammad is the singular author of the text of the Quran. There are many people who would question that. There are reasons for questioning that. There's There's a lot of reason to see that there is a a major emendation and editing of the Quran, not under the third caliph Uthman, uh, but around 700 to 705. But <laughs> even leaving those issues aside for the moment, the the if we have a singular author, Muslims will tell us that he is in essence illiterate. Uh, we know that the earliest full manuscripts we have the Bible of the of the New Testament or Old Testament in Arabic come from the end of the ninth century, long after Muhammad has passed. He did not have access to the text of the Bible for himself. And I could argue that he felt that what he was teaching in the Quran, especially his proclamation of monotheism, was consistent with what is found in the text of Scripture. But he was wrong. He did not have access to it. There's only two verses of the Bible cited in the Quran, and both are clearly by memory. One is the Lex Talionis, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Another is from uh, the Psalms. And he did not know what was found in the text of the Bible. During, after that period of Islamic expansion, 632 to 732, and then that next century or so, there's still fluctuating borders, things like that. Then as the, as the Islamic scholarship begins to develop and Islamic culture begins to develop, the borders begin to exist, and now there has to be apologetic interaction, and, and Islamic scholarship has to start dealing with the text of the Bible, and they start reading it, Lo and behold, they're faced with a real problem. Their holy text is inconsistent with what their holy text says was the predecessor to them, yeah. and that their prophet actually used to say, hey, go to the people of the Injil, go to the Al-Kitab, the people of the book, and look at what God gave them, and it will show you that I am a prophet. <laughs> well, when you do that, it doesn't. That's the problem. And so there is this, this inherent anachronism that has been built into Islamic uh, apologetics and Islamic theology. They, they really can't differentiate between the two. got to understand, Islam cannot define itself outside of a denial of Christian truth. Christians need to understand that. The, the world doesn't seem to understand that, but Christians need to understand. Even in the Quran itself, you have Surah 112, which is as close to a creedal statement as you can find. Ali Klaas is what it's called, and it's, it's only four ayah long, four verses long. And the third ayah says, Lem yelid wa lem yulid. He neither begets nor is he begotten. 
Now, that is clearly in reference to our faith and to our proclamation. Right. You can find reference after reference after reference in the Quran uh, saying that we are guilty of going to excess in our religion and that Jesus is not the Son of God and that uh, Surah 5, 116-117 seems to indicate that, that the author of the Quran even believed that the Trinity for us was Allah, Mary, and their son Jesus. Uh, and if that's the case, that truly indicates that the Quran is not from God because even if the Trinity is wrong, God knew what it was by the 7th century, one way or the other. <laughs> you know, So uh, all these things come together to force the modern uh, Muslim to have to deny uh, the reliability and usability of the New Testament. Well, how did they do that? Well, the early Muslims did not do that by attacking it textually. They had a fundamental belief that since it had been Natsal, it had been sent down by God. The Quran says to believe in the books, plural, that he has sent down. And, and, is, and he says to the Al-Kitab, the people of the book, uh, look at what your books say. Go to your books and judge by what is therein. Now, you gentlemen know, we know what the state of both the Old and New Testament text was without a question in 632. Uh, Codex Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, Alexandrinus are all 250, 270 years prior to this period of time. Mm. We know what the state of the text was. And so the early uh, approaches were not to attack the, the, the text whatsoever, but to attack our reading, our interpretation. Well, that didn't get you very far, because any consistent reading or interpretation of the New Testament as a whole is not going to lead you to a Unitarian uh, viewpoint with Jesus as a mere Razul of Allah. Right. And so the modern perspective has been to attack it as having been corrupted over time. Uh, almost any of the wildest uh, liberal perspectives that you can see out there in liberal Christianity will be borrowed directly, lock, stock, and barrel, by modern Islamic apologists. They love to go after Paul. The wildest theories about Paul you've ever imagined uh, will, will gain venue, they'll, they'll gain uh, currency the amongst Muslim. Islamic apologists. Huh. And so... It is, it is the area that, that uh, really the Jesus Seminar folks, you know, uh, John Dominic Crossan, uh, Bart Ehrman, all these people, you're, you're studying the same area. You need to know the same material, the same information. I mean, I've struggled greatly to get, especially Reformed Christians, interested in this subject. Let's face it, for most of us, the Muslims have towels on their heads and an AK-47 in their hands. I mean, that's all we know about them. There's only about two and a half to three million in the United States grand total. And so for most people, it's just like, well, they're over there. I'm over here. I'm not really interested in that kind of stuff. And I have had to keep telling people, look, you need to realize the things that you need to be studying uh, about your own faith to give a real solid response to the Muslim uh, are the very things that you need to be studying if your children are going to be going into the local Bible college or uh, community college because the uh, professor of the philosophy religion professor is going to be going after them and he's going to be wielding, you know, John Dominic Crossan and Bart Ehrman and John Shelby Spong. And these are the same things that, that you need to be dealing with when you're dealing with the with Islam itself. So uh, that has helped me to get a few people to realize that, hey, you know, this isn't actually something that would be uh, bad to study. But that's the fundamental uh, issue is the reliability of the text in the New Testament. And then right above that, of course, as you probably know, Islam denies the crucifixion of Christ. Mm -hmm. uh, based on one ayah, only one ayah in all of the Quran, most Christians should know 
uh, Surah 4, 157, uh, that says that the Jews boasted that they had killed uh, the Messiah, which I've always found interesting the Jews would call him the Messiah, but that they killed the Messiah, the Razul, the Apostle of Allah, Jesus, the son of Mary, but they killed him not, nor did they crucify him, but it was made to appear to them. It was made to appear to them. That has produced so many interpretations, even amongst the Muslims, uh, that you can't even find two Muslims that are necessarily united as to what that means, other than Jesus did not die upon a cross, therefore there was no resurrection, etc., etc. The irony is, and uh, this is, I think, something I like to point out to folks, if Surah 4.127 was not in the Quran, the Quran would speak about the death of Jesus in both Surah 355 and, and uh, 1933, the natural reading of the Arabic language in those places would refer to his death. In fact, the very same language, word for word, is used of John the Baptist, and nobody thinks John the Baptist was physically taken up into heaven. In fact, he was uh, obviously beheaded, so that yes. would normally lead to physical death. Um, but because Surah 4 is there, they read those in very odd and strange ways to try to get around the fact that uh, there's a contradiction within the Quran at that point. And there is absolutely no Hadith uh, literature. No, for 200 years, Muslims could not think of anything that Muhammad had said about that one particular ayah. Uh, that introduces all sorts of issues, uh, for me anyways, especially given how uh, the Quran was collected and put together uh, that, uh, that are very important. But that leads then to the issues of the gospel, uh, the fact that Muslims do not believe that there needs to be any sacrifice, there does not need to be any uh, fulfillment of God's wrath. And let's face it, guys, most Christians are so weak on the cross. They are so weak on atonement. Mm -hmm. they, their theology of the cross is primarily tradition and feeling and emotion that I've seen more than once a Muslim go, well, why can't God just forgive me? You can without killing somebody else. Why can't God? And all of a sudden there's silence. Um, now, you all, of course, being students at Westminster Theological mm. Seminary are well aware of the fact that there was even controversy over that subject uh, at the time of the Westminster uh, Assembly, yeah. and John Owen wrote on the necessity of the demonstration of God's justice and the atonement and so on and so forth. Uh, but let's face it, the vast majority of evangelicals just go, well, that's just how I was taught, and they really don't know how to respond to those kinds of issues. Now, uh, let's speak for a moment just on, uh, you mentioned the doctrine of God, the fact that the, the uh, Muslim is a Unitarian. Do, do they not have the problem of, of having a transcendent God even communicate or reveal himself to his creation? What are some of the issues involved in, in, in doctrine of God in terms of Islam? Yeah, there are, are a lot of questions that were addressed. You know, there was a period of time where... Islam produced an incredible culture. There's no question about that. Uh, you go back in history, and, and uh, the West, for example, inherited Aristotle from the Islamic world. Yes. Uh, and it was the, the Crusades and the interactions there and the eventually the fall of Constantinople, 1453, and the things that took place in that time period. Uh, they, they produced quite a, uh, quite a culture. The interesting thing about that is it was the kind of Islam that we fear most today that destroyed the Islamic culture in the first place. In other words, the Quran itself produces an anti-intellectualism that eventually destroyed 
the intellectual aspects of Islamic culture. Huh. Uh, and that's what we are fighting uh, today. Uh, even though people like uh, Osama bin Laden are actually very intelligent individuals, their intelligence has driven them to the point of a consistency that requires, in essence, the, the establishment of an Islamic culture all around the world. That is the only way that Sharia can actually truly be established from their perspective. That's a whole other area sure. uh, that we could go into at some point. But anyway, um, during that uh, renaissance, shall we say, of Islamic culture, there was much discussion of exactly what you raise. And, and that is there is such a uh, tremendous transcendence uh, enunciated in the description of Allah in the Quran and then in the Hadith, that the, the concept of, of, of any type of personal uh, relevance of Allah to our lives, uh, any type of relationship issue, uh, caused all sorts of questions and came up with all sorts of answers. And even to this day, um, when I, when I, <laughs> I, I, I'm a, I used to be a long-distance bicyclist. Now I guess I'm a medium-distance bicyclist. <laughs> I mean, I did did 150 miles last week, so I suppose that's it's not somewhat, too shabby. Yeah, it's not too bad, I suppose, <laughs> but uh, not not like what I used to do. But um, that's my time for study. That's when I listen. I thank the Lord so much for the iPod Shuffle. It is such a wonderful ministry Amen. tool because that's when I get literally hours of studying without the phone going off or any, anything else, email coming in or anything else. And when I study Islam, I don't just, you know, I do listen to the debates of the opponents I have coming up. I'll, I'll be debating, uh, Lord willing, uh, Shabir Ali again in, in London. Actually, it might be in Birmingham. We're trying to set it up right now. Uh, I may have three debates within four days in London uh, and a radio uh, debate as well. And then coming right back to Duke, uh, flying back to Duke University and debating Dr. Zulfikar Ali Shah mm -hmm. uh, right afterwards. It's going to be the craziest uh, 10 or 12 days of my entire adult life. But uh, <laughs> hopefully the, the Lord will bless during that time. But I don't just listen to their debates. I do. I listen to them very, very carefully. But I try to find when they are simply talking to fellow Muslims about what they believe. I want to hear what they're saying internally. I want to, I want to try to get inside their minds and understand their perspectives. Uh, so I can communicate and use their language. And as I, as I listen to uh, especially the, 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 the Salafi, the Salafi are, are basically the fundamentalists, the very conservative, almost Wahhabi-type Muslims, there is so clearly for me a, a evidence of this strong de desire on their part for a mediator. They want and need a mediator. And you can hear them struggling with things that have developed about people praying to Muhammad. Muhammad, by his nature, becomes uh, a substitute for Jesus. Hmm. He, they, they have to fight against, there are many, many Muslims who feel that you can pray to Muhammad. That, that your prayers will be taken by angels to Muhammad. And that Muhammad can then take them to Allah. Well, what is that? That's yeah. a mediator. Yeah, that's, right. that's the yeah. very connectedness in humanity uh, that they don't have theologically. And another saying, no, 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 you can't do this. This is shirk. This is association of, of a created being with, with Allah. You can't do this. But it just keeps coming up and it keeps coming up because that's what is missing. 
And I don't know if you remember, it was about uh, two years ago. Do you remember seeing the pictures of the bombing at the yeah. Glasgow airport? And uh-huh. where they drove this, this uh, looked like a Jeep, as I recall. And it didn't work right. It didn't blow up the way they thought it was going to blow up. They both eventually died of their burns, as I recall. Those men were not poor, down-and-out individuals. They were medical students right. with promising futures. And one of the reasons that stuck so clearly with me is I've walked through that very door multiple times. I have friends in Glasgow. I've ministered uh, in Annie's Land, which is a suburb of Glasgow. And it just amazed me to sit there and see that fire at the very spot where I have stood waiting for, for a ride. It was incredible. But why do men like that who have bright and promising futures blow themselves up in a gas-filled vehicle at an airport in Glasgow? It's because they don't have the type of assurance. We know the Quran only gives one means of having any kind of assurance of entering into paradise, and that is to die in jihad. Mm. Um, there is no other way of knowing. And there is, a, there is such an arbitrariness in the forgiveness of Allah that there is this insatiable desire for certainty of knowledge of your relationship, which is what you get from jihad, or then the creation, for those who aren't quite up to that kind of activity, the creation of these less-than-orthodox mechanisms of prayers to Muhammad and, and things like that, where Muhammad really becomes a semi-deity for many of these people. It really does. Dr. White, I thought it might be helpful if you could just briefly kind of explain some of the divisions within Islam and some of the differences. Yeah, a lot of folks over here, in fact, the really sad thing is, a lot of folks in our government did not have a clue when we went into Iraq uh, what the issues in, in Islam were, and, and that has resulted in a lot of problems. But the primary things that we hear, of course, are the two major groups, and that is the Sunni and the Shia. And this, of course, goes back to the very foundations of Islam. Uh, the, the Sunni are about 85 to 90% of the, of the population of Islam in the world. And by the way, let me just mention in passing, uh, I like asking uh, groups when I'm speaking to them on this subject, what percentage do you think of the world's Muslims are Arabic? <laughs> and for most Christians, they'd go uh, 80, something like that. About 19% of mm-hmm. the world's Muslims are Arabic. Uh, less than 20%. Uh, the vast, the, the heart, the heartbeat of Islam is Indonesia. Really? It is, it is Asian and uh, South Asian. And uh, that's where the vast majority uh, of, of the world's Muslims are. Most people just don't understand that. And, and, and that's why seeing this as primarily an Arab issue just uh, completely misses, misses the boat. But um, the Sunnis make up the vast majority of the world's Muslims. Uh, in Iran, especially, you have uh, Shiism, and uh, it's, it's difficult to describe the differences that have developed over time between the two in a brief period of time. But in essence, uh, the you could see uh, the the Shia as having more of a dynamic view of of God and inspiration. Uh, the Sunnis would be a little bit more, to use our terminology, sola scriptura or Sola Scriptura plus tradition, hadith, 
So I guess that would make them a little bit more on the Tiber side of that particular issue. With this, uh, with this division, I think when I was reading a book a couple of years ago, it almost sounded vaguely similar to Protestant Catholic divisions uh, within Christianity, at least on there the are ideas. parallels. The, yeah, there there are parallels. Par- there yeah. weren't so much historically, sure. but there have been parallels that have developed uh, because when one group, uh, in essence, says the Quran and interpreted in light of the the Sunnah of the Prophet, the Hadith, and then the other side, which is the minority side, uh, tends to develop charismatic leaders, ayatollahs, imams, Imam. mm-hmm. who have a special inspired interpretation. That's why Khomeini's uh, uh, decisions back in the 70s were viewed as, as having, in essence, divine authority, is that he, is, he has this, this divine ability to interpret it. It's not so much replacing the Quran as it is still a living voice yeah. of interpretation, An shall we say. Ex-cathedra, so to speak. Almost. In, in essence, yeah. yeah. And, and so uh, Shiism has spawned even more, uh, well, what they would almost refer to as cultic groups because of that, because you're allowing for uh, almost a Joseph Smith-type mm-hmm. person to come along and to claim you know, this special interpretation and break off his own group and so on and so forth. And so there's all sorts of small little uh, Druze groups and things like that over there in the Mideast that most of us never heard of. Uh, and when, when the armed forces went in there, all of a sudden they find themselves in the middle of this stuff that no one had any idea uh, how, to, how to deal with almost any of it. But then even within those, uh, of course, you have the Salafis, the, Wah- the Wahhabis. These are the, are the very, very conservative uh, individuals and many of them are the ones that are willing to engage in debate uh, because they actually believe that what they say is true, and it's true for everybody. And so they're the ones most willing to engage in debate. A, a less, uh, it's the same thing's true on the Christian side of things. I mean, liberals are not generally the ones who are interested in debate because right. from their perspective, what really is there to debate about anyways? <laughs> um, I mean, when I debated John Shelby Spong on homosexuality, in Florida a couple of years ago, I, I cannot begin to tell you uh, how he oozed uh, the feeling that that was the last place on the planet he wanted to be that yeah. night. Uh, you know, it, from their perspective, it's just, you know, why are we doing this? Can't we all just sort of, you know, get along? That's, that's sort of the essence of liberalism. But yeah. uh, the Salafi, the Wahhabis, this very, very conservative, strict, uh, go with just the interpretations of the first number of generations of of those who knew the prophet and, and the companions of the prophet, uh, that's really the breeding ground of Al Qaeda and the radicalized Islam that uh, that is spoken of most often today. Uh, and then, of course, you've got Sufism, and uh, uh, Sufis can can cross the line between these various groups. Just a very spiritualized uh, form of Islam that's willing to bring in a whole lot more uh, in, in its sources than than. Uh, non-Sufi Islam would, and, and really, they have created quite a, a variety of uh, of groups within the within the mix. There, it can be very, very bewildering. Mm. And what we find on on television when they, you know, when the news anchor calls up the Muslim informant or whatever, it's not necessarily <laughs> an orthodox version of uh, Islam. We always we always find that you know on the news sometimes when we see somebody speaking from for Christianity, they might be the most outrageous liberal. And 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 we can't expect that every single 
Muslim that we find speaking on television, speaking about Muslim being a peaceful religion, etc., is necessarily speaking from an orthodox position either. Uh, most definitely, and, and in fact, the the Muslims themselves complain about that. And uh, you know, I, I have a number of RSS feeds of of various Islamic organizations, and and uh, that is a common complaint that they have. Where did these people in the media come up with, you know, this person to call him an expert on Islam, or yeah. et cetera, et cetera? So they they have the same uh, complaints, and I I think valid complaints at that point. Um, because we do tend to want to put them all in one group. And right. obviously the fact that they're uh, fighting with each other rather voraciously in other countries demonstrates they're not all in one group. Hmm. Uh, but we, we want to try to uh, sort of uh, even stuff out along those lines. You know, I, I didn't want to skip over something you had asked about the doctrine of God. I, oh. I, I'm sort of assuming that everyone is aware of the fact that one of the key areas of debate and conflict has to do with Jesus Christ, the deity of Christ, the doctrine of the Trinity, yes. uh, things like that. Obviously, if Jesus is just a mere Azul, uh, the Holy Spirit's Gabriel, uh, that that is a, a key fundamental area. And again, I have found, uh, it's been interesting to come at this from, from with my background, I have found the Muslims to be extremely willing uh, to ransack Jehovah's Witness websites uh, for every kind of of bad Jehovah's Witness argument known, and throw it out there, knowing that let's face it, again, it's another tremendously weak area for evangelicals is to be able to give a meaningful, biblical, uh, consistent defense of the doctrine of the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the person of the Holy Spirit, uh, things along those lines. And so, uh, a number of the debates I've done have been on the deity of Christ. One of those I'll be doing in London. Uh, will be uh, a defense of the deity of Christ. And I know the man I'll be debating actually moderated a debate he did with another Christian apologist, so I know uh, what he's going to be throwing out there. And uh, like I said, it's just bad Jehovah's Witness argumentation. But sadly, most uh, Muslims have never heard of a real strong, uh, passionate, and yet accurate defense of the Trinity and the deity of Christ. And mm-hmm. so that's another major area of uh, conflict as well. Just as a point of uh, interest to our listeners, I know many of you are out there are uh, Vantillian. That's an interesting uh, place for research, uh, how the Trinity and Vantillian apologetics impacts uh, Muslim apologetics. Since we have the doctrine of the Trinity that solves some issues that you find in philosophy, it uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that a a Muslim we're speaking to is going to be interested in these philosophical problems, but uh, Van Til oftentimes speaks of the problem of the one and the many. And uh, and, and just as an encouragement to people, if they want to go read, you can find uh, Van Til writing about the doctrine of the Trinity and how that actually holds together the transcendental approach, something that the Muslim can't do. Uh, just uh, before we, we leave you, before we, uh, we let you go, um, where would you or how would you encourage us uh, to actually engage with Muslims in apologetics? It, it seems like many of us don't even have any Muslim friends, don't know where to yeah. go. If we want to uh, or have a heart's desire to go and to bring the gospel to Muslims, where, where would you go or how would you, how would you suggest that we go about doing that? Well, it wouldn't be overly difficult to locate uh, there in the Philadelphia area the uh, Islamic uh, uh, propagation centers, uh, the local mosques. They are building them very quickly, primarily with uh, the money that we have given to Saudi Arabia in the form of oil. And uh, they get li- literally get millions and millions of dollars uh, to build these centers and to 
uh, staff them and to uh, have Qurans that they can give to people and so on and so forth. Um, you might uh, uh, take a tour of your local mosque, get to know who the imam is. Uh, these are human beings. Uh, they they are made in the image of God, and uh, the, you know. Hopefully, we're not going to have, uh, as so often happens, unfortunately, uh, we Christians jump on our on our white horses and head off, and you know we're going to uh, stave off the horde or something like that. Uh, we want to adorn the gospel of Christ. We want to demonstrate a true uh, desire to share the truth uh, with these individuals and to listen to where they're coming from. Uh, very often what they say will, will give us a good indication of the direction that we want to go in, uh, in sharing with them and speaking with them. And uh, so that that's, uh, would be very, very useful as well. So uh, sometimes they'll have, uh, they'll have uh, conferences, they'll have uh, things where they're out and about, and so obviously there are opportunities of, uh, of street witnessing and encounters in that context. And be ready, because most of them who live here in the United States and have lived here for any period of time at all uh, are going to uh, have certain apologetic knowledge. They're going to have um, some pretty uh, interesting questions to throw your direction. And uh, sometimes the objections are not the type that we are really accustomed to answering. When I give presentations on this, I like to play some of the audience questions that have come up in debates that I've had. And uh, it, it, it's, it's truly fascinating to, to hear someone say, well, for example, when Jesus uh, cursed the fig tree, if he was God, first of all, we don't know why he'd be hungry because he's God and God doesn't have to eat, but, but uh, he cursed the fig tree because it didn't have, have fruit, but it wasn't in season. If he's God, he'd know what the season for figs is. And, 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 if, and even beyond that, then if he was God, he could just have the, the tree give figs. And, you know, and I like to watch audiences as I play these audience questions because they're left sitting there going, I can't believe they think that's an objection. But then I go, okay, how do you respond to it? Right. Uh, because it's so, out, so far outside of our normative, uh, you know, uh, area of thinking uh, that uh, we, we need to be careful how we give a response to someone saying, well, Jesus can't be God uh, because he ate food. Uh, that's not the kind of thing we're used to dealing with. So, uh, if you could go out there, you know, be ready for that kind of uh, that kind of a thing. A question about why uh, there has to be the death of of someone to bring about salvation, to bring about forgiveness. Uh, the whole issue of the atonement and the fact that, from the Muslim perspective, uh, prophets don't die the way Jesus died. Jesus could not possibly have died upon a cross right. because he was a great prophet, and that would show disdain for a prophet, and therefore he couldn't have died that way. Now, that's not the kind of stuff we're used to. Again? Yeah, go ahead, sure. Jason. I was just kind of along those lines. I was going to ask you um, about where you would point people as far as resources. Obviously, from what you've been saying, just some of the basic Christian doctrines, like a defense of the atonement and the Trinity and the deity of Christ. Uh, sounds like we could all brush up on those, but some maybe some more specific type resources. I know your website has some, but some other ones that you might recommend. Yeah, you know, we're trying to, I'm trying to sort of model this. Uh, starting back in January, I, I got this idea from Jay Smith, who ministers to, uh, to uh, Muslims in London. Uh, we were at a conference together, and he mentioned the, the tremendous success he was having with YouTube. And really? I now have nearly 300 videos up on my YouTube site, and as a result, our website is getting hits uh, from this place called Indonesia. Oh, excellent. Uh, wow. We have yeah, we have tremendous opportunities for doing that kind of stuff now. So I, I really am trying to uh, address 
uh, all of the issues, the, the, the texts, uh, the things that they bring up, and I like to use them to do it. I like to let them make the objection. I've found a lot of resources like the Dean Show and things like that where they're providing the objections, and then I, I provide uh, the responses. And so AOMN.org is, is very helpful. AnsweringIslam.org is a huge website, an international website, Answering-Islam.org. Uh, just a huge number of resources there, almost any issue that you would ever run into in regards to uh, the subject of Islam has been addressed by someone, by the whole team of folks that are active on uh, on that website as well. So uh, between the two of us, hopefully we're providing a, a fair amount of uh, uh, good uh, good information along those lines. Excellent. Well, we want to point everyone to uh, Alpha and Omega Ministries, of course. As I already mentioned, you can visit aomin.org. You can catch the dividing line. You can even get in the chat room, which has always uh, has some interesting discussions. Uh, so you can catch it there. You can also see a schedule of events uh, as uh, Dr. White will be debating many people in the coming month and also into January with his debate against Bart Ehrman. Uh, I'd also like to point you back to our website at reformedforum.org. There you can get the bibliography of today's episode. You can also find out other information about our other programs and subscribe to our podcast feeds in order to get this and others automatically downloaded to your computer. I want to thank everybody for listening, and we look forward to having you back next time on Christ the Center. <laughs>